0: and you just know it right off the bat. Uh, as someone who's grown up in the church, as uh, some people here have, in fact, it's hard to remember a time when I could not remember Acts 2.38, because that's just, that's just part of it, right? <laughs> there we go. Every time someone got baptized, there was that big, oh boy, above the baptismal tank, there was that big blue piece of flannel with white flannel letters on it that was Acts 2.38. Aren't you thankful for flannel today? <laughs> and, and most of us could quote it, and if not quote it, you could at least tell me, the, if you would, the three steps of salvation. Repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And we are confident in this. In fact, we're confident enough that most of us don't really have any problem in telling someone else if they would ask us the question like they did Peter on that day what must I do to be saved, if we were asked that in some form or fashion, most of us would not have a problem, and we would feel confident in saying, you need to repent, you need to be baptized, you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost. We're confident in this. If, if someone does these things, if someone says, what must I do to be saved, or some form of that, and I tell them, you need to repent, you need to be baptized, you need to be filled with the Holy Ghost, if someone does those things, a question, are they saved? Anyone? Any takers? Are you saved? I'm trying not to give you trick questions this morning. Now, see, at, at this point, when I ask the question, is that person saved, that's when we get a little bit nervous, it seems like. We have no problem when someone says, what must I do to be saved, giving them an answer. But then when I ask you, is that person saved... Then we're a little nervous, even though you've just answered the question, how can I be saved? It's not a trick question, because I believe that when you repent, you're baptized, you're filled with the Holy Ghost, that yes, that person is saved. Because they asked Peter, what must I do to be saved? And he told them, okay? I'm, I'm really not trying to set you up for a trick question, I promise you. So how many people here have experienced the new birth experience? Just raise your hand, you've experienced that. Good. Now, I don't know if I should have you raise your hand or not. Who knows? Let me ask you, how many of you are saved? How many of you feel a little uncomfortable raising your hand saying, yes, I'm saved? I don't know. Maybe you don't. How many of you are uncomfortable just raising your hand at all? How many of you forgot deodorant this morning? (laughs) How many of you, your neighbor's uncomfortable when you raise your hand? But it seems to me like while we're confident in, in that new birth experience and sharing that with other people, it seems like when the question comes, am I saved, I personally get a little uncomfortable with saying, yes, I'm saved. I don't know about you. Perhaps it's not, and then I'm just going to teach myself for a little bit. How about that? But it seems like a little bit maybe of, of, of uh, uncomfortableness uh, because we've heard things, we've heard people say different things. Uh, there's that whole issue uh, uh, of pride and, and what Scripture says about pride. And there's conflict and emotions and things. And we're confident in the fact of the new birth. But once that is done, it seems like uh, outside of that, we suddenly begin to experience some doubt once again about our salvation. We know and there's different things we find in Scripture. We find this found in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. This, this part of when Jesus is talking here. He says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not pros- prophesied, pro- prophesied pros- uh, yeah, in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me ye that work iniquity. Now we find this, this verse, it references the fact that there will be people that have served the Lord, that have prophesied, that have cast out devils, that have done works in His name, and yet God does not. He says, I don't know you on Judgment Day. Now, I don't know about you, but that scares me a little bit, and it's supposed to be a warning. It is supposed to put a little bit of trepidation in your spirit that you can work miracles, and that doesn't mean you're saved. It also it, it warns us that external behavior... My external actions are not the sole thing that God is looking at, but you and I know that there are issues of the heart as well. Hopefully you know that. It also warns us that just because someone is used by God is not a sign that their life is validated by God. Hopefully you don't think that whenever you come to church all the time, but just because somebody is used by God does not validate their lifestyle. Okay, Uh, Never forget Balaam's donkey. God used the donkey. God can use all sorts of people. So just because somebody is used by God, that in and of itself is not valid that God uh, agrees with their entire life. But you know what it also does? It also gives me hope that God can and will use anyone because there's people that on the day of judgment, uh, God says, I didn't even know you yet. They prophesied, they preached, they did miracles, they did signs, they did wonders that God can use anyone. So if you're wondering if God can use you, yes, he can use you. It doesn't matter, actually this verse tells us that it doesn't matter about your spiritual condition because those people were lost. God can use you. So if you're trying to live for God, you don't have to wonder, does God want to use me? Yes, he wants to use you and he can use you. However, I think this passage lends itself also to making us begin to question our salvation sometimes because it, adds, it has a warning in it. And so I begin to wonder, I don't want to be that person. Of course, I don't want to be that person. Now, I've heard people say, and this is, again, I'm not trying to come against any particular person, but we're talking about confidence in salvation or any particular teaching. But I've heard people say that, that we aren't saved until we walk through the gates of heaven or we walk on the streets of gold or until he said, well done. And yes, I do agree with that. I do agree with that, that my salvation is not complete until I am in heaven. It should not negate me feeling a confidence in my salvation while here on earth. Okay, So I understand when people say, uh, no, if someone asks me I'm saved, no, I'm not saved because I'm not in heaven. I, I understand the whole big picture thing that yes, I, my salvation is not complete, yet here on earth there should be a confidence. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, this verse is interesting to me for a few reasons. The first off is that if, if the Lord is sanctified in my heart, if He is sanctified in my heart, then others should see something different in me. That's the first thing that interests me, or, or that, that makes me think. There should be something, if the Lord is sanctified in my heart, something so different that it, they don't just see it, but it actually causes them to ask me about it. Now, that, that's a challenge to me. Because when was the last time that someone came up to you and said, I see there's something different about you, tell me about it. That's a challenge to me. That if it says, if the Lord is sanctified in my hearts, then people should be able to see the difference in me. And not just see it, but it should cause something to stir in them enough for them to take action also. And the second thing that I want you to notice is what they see in me. They don't see the external They don't necessarily see how I dress. They don't even necessarily hear what I'm saying, but they see something in me, and what they see is a hope. They see a hope within me. That my hope that is internal should somehow be so great that people see it externally. Now, this is very important. I think it's important also to distinguish here between what hope means and what wish is. If I hope something happens or I wish something will happen... There's a difference. You see, hope carries with it the idea of the possible. I hope I'm going to have dinner today. Don't you? Just a few people? There is a strong possibility because there is food in the house. There is a woman to cook. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. (laughs) Not anymore. I no longer have hope. It's a wish. But for hope to be hope, it has with it the idea of possibility. Okay? So you can hope that uh, uh, you get a, a promotion this week. There is a possibility. Well, I don't know. I guess that depends on you. Maybe there's not. But you can, you can hope that you'll make it home. You can hope that you'll walk outside and your car's still there because you're, okay? So the, it has this idea of possibility with it. More than that, it's founded upon reality. Okay, so hope is based upon reality and what is really possible. Thus, I have the I, I, comes with it is a confidence or assurance because it's founded in ri- reality and what is possible. Now, wishing is something that is more founded upon the impossible. Okay, now my my greatest wish uh, when I was a child, my dream job was to be a race car driver. That's really a wish. Now that's really not hope anymore. Okay, that's a wish. It's really impossible, but it's something that's the opposite of reality. Oh, I wish I could just fly. Well, that's just not going to happen, okay? Wishing is something that's founded on the impossible. So I want us to understand that sometimes our salvation gets caught up in this wishing thing, but that's, that's not right because when we begin to wish things about God, people don't see our wishes. They see the hope, okay? So I'm not wishing that I make it to heaven. I am hoping that I make it to heaven. And that's based upon reality, and it's based upon the possible. And <clears throat> now, I can't make it to heaven unless I'm saved. Is that correct? Okay? I can't exhibit hope that I will make it to heaven unless I have some confidence in my salvation. If I'm not sure that I'm saved, then I'm just wishing I make it to heaven. If I can't have confidence in it, but if I have confidence, then suddenly there's a hope because there's a reality based on Scripture. It's possible for me to make it there, and other people can see that. You see, that's why it's important to distinguish because sometimes people don't see anything in us because we're just simply wishing for the best. I wish I'm going I, I to make it to heaven. <clears throat> And the issue is is that uh, 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 we know how to tell someone else how to be saved. We can quote them Acts 2.38, we can give them the steps, but a lot of times we don't have any personal confidence in our own salvation. Honestly, many of us feel like we're stumbling around in the dark when it comes to our own salvation, praying that we're doing enough, being enough to make it. And again, perhaps this is not you, that's fine. And we're stumbling around trying to figure out, is this right? Is this going to send me to hell? I wonder if I'm saved today. But what about walking with confidence in our salvation? That's something that seems foreign to some people. It's no wonder then that nobody's asking us about our hope. You see, when I think about how many people have asked me about my hope, maybe the issue is, is I don't have hope myself. I'm simply wishing. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. I think I'm supposed to have hope, something that's possible, something that's based in reality. Again, I recognize the fact that my salvation is not complete until he says, well done. And again, I, I don't believe that I, this is not in any way saying that once saved, always saved. That once I, uh, I go through a new birth experience, that my salvation, that's it. That's, that's it done and over. I can do whatever I want. So if you take that away, then I'll just say you're wrong. So we'll just settle that right now. I was <laughs> Well, anyway, never mind. That's just a tangent. But I do feel, not, I'm not once saved, always saved. I know that it's not absolutely complete until he says, well done. But I do feel that I should be able to do what Scripture tells me, like what it states in Romans, Romans chapter 5 and verse 2. It says, By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I think that I should be able to have access to God because that was part of the promise. That was part of His sacrifice, is that now I have access by faith into this grace. And I, have, I can rejoice in the hope. What hope is that? The possibility, the reality that salvation can come into my life and that I can spend eternity with Him. Ephesians chapter 3 says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. I would like to put those three words to your walk with God and challenge you. Is your walk with God bold? Do you have access and are you confident before God? Now, some of us have boldness and we can proclaim stuff to other people, but I'm talking about between you and God. Can you approach God boldly? Do you feel like you have access to Him? Can you approach Him with confidence? Are you always worried that you're not good enough, your salvation isn't enough, that you're, you're that's an issue. How many of have ever gone before the Lord in prayer and you had to spend, you know, you had a real, you had a need or something and you had to spend the first 20 minutes just repenting? Just so you get to the point where you could even ask. That's not confidence. Now, I'm not negating repentance. Okay, we're, we'll get into it, okay? But you understand what I'm saying. The author of Hebrews states it this way. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus... We should be able to approach Jesus boldly. Now, you can't approach boldly if you don't have confidence. I mean, if someone could demonstrate how I approach boldly, yet without confidence, then you could do that in the back there by the sound. Brother Rob would be happy to grade you on your bold approach without confidence. That's difficult to do. You see, He made a way for me to have access. He made a way for me to have rejoicing in my life. He made a way for me to have hope and boldness, and it was through His death. And let me say, if I don't have these things, if I do not have the hope, the rejoicing, the boldness, the confidence, there are two things that I need to look at in my life. The first is, I have sin in my life, or I'm living in opposition to Him. If I can't approach him with boldness, and you you know what I'm talking about. There's moments in your life when you know that there's, uh, you may not have killed someone with an axe, but you know there was something that definitely wasn't right in your life. And there's a, there's a, uh, there's something that, uh, a wall that comes up when you try to approach God because you know you're not right. And until you deal with that, until you do repent, you won't be right. So there's sin in your life. Or the second thing is I'm not fully experiencing the work of salvation that he did for me. Now I want you to hear what I said there. That there's a work of salvation that does not end with three steps from Acts 2.38. That is included in that is access, is rejoicing, is hope, is boldness. And if I can't go before the Lord with boldness and confidence, perhaps I haven't fully experienced salvation. Does that mean I'm not saved? No, but you know what? There's a whole lot in salvation more than repent, be baptized, and fill with the Holy Ghost. Although those are essential personally, I don't want either of those choices. I don't want to have sin in my life, and I don't want to walk in an unfulfilled work of salvation. Let me add this, and, and this will step into some murky waters maybe a little bit, but that's all right. I've got boots on. If you come to church, and all you ever feel is conviction at church, then it's probably because one of those two things. You've either got sin in your life, or you're not fully experiencing the work of salvation that he did for you. Now, I want to say very plainly that if you come to church and don't ever feel conviction, you got issues too. <laughs> and you know what? We've been doing a, a series on Sunday morning on, on where, where are you with various things. And you know what? You're going to hear another one this morning about where are you with something, and you should probably feel conviction today. But if all you ever feel when you come to church is conviction... Where's the confidence? Where's the boldness? Where's the rejoicing? Where where is all that? Perhaps there's something more that I need to experience in my life. Do you understand that I'm saying you don't ever, you know, it should all be wonderful when you come to church? No, you should get smacked between the eyes a few times a year. We won't say who needs it more than others, but okay. But if I'm never confident in His presence... If I don't ever feel like I'm accepted, that if I don't ever feel like I'm loved or forgiven in His presence, then I'm not experiencing the full benefits of of salvation. There should be something that rises up in me when I begin to think of his salvation and what he's done for me that brings a boldness and confidence that his death, that his blood was enough in my life to save me. And because of his blood, Hebrews says, I can enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. This is not because of me, but because of his blood, I should be able to enter into his presence with thanksgiving, with praise, feeling accepted, feeling loved, and feeling encouraged. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15, it's not just about that salvation thing, but when I experience that fullness of his salvation, it's more than just uh, getting a ticket punched. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15 says, For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved, in quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, and you would not. Isaiah connects here salvation, returning, rest, quietness, confidence, and strength. All together. I must return to him and find my rest in him for salvation. That means I've got to come back to him. I've got to quit doing my own thing, find rest in him, and I'll find salvation. But it says for my strength, I've got to have quietness and confidence. If I want strength. I wonder if times we're not struggling in those weak moments, feeling weak. Not because he's left us, not because the circumstance is too big, but suddenly we have lost confidence in our salvation. We get, in, we get in situations where things begin to overwhelm us. How many of you have ever been in a circumstance and, and, and you're honest with yourself, you had a little bit of doubt? I mean, I have. I don't know about you. How many of you ever, you don't have to raise your hand again, the whole deodorant thing, but you, you've, you've honestly wondered. You know God doesn't leave you or forsake you, but in that moment you thought, where are you, God? You, kn- you know he doesn't leave you, but he's just not here right now. You know he's a provider, yet you just don't have the provision right now. (laughs) It's in those moments when I'm weak. And you know what we begin to do? The enemy loves to come in in those moments. Because you know what? You will have moments of doubt in your life. You will. It's in those moments of doubt that suddenly the enemy begins to come in and he begins to steal your confidence in your salvation. Not in yourself, but in your salvation. Begins to say... You call yourself saved and you're wondering if God, God's even a provider? You're, you call yourself saved and you're laying here in the hospital. You've been here three days and you're wondering if God can really heal anymore? You call yourself saved and you know what you do? You begin to question, well, you know what? I need to start repenting. I need to start doing this. And you begin this cycle of, uh, of all this stuff. And you know what? We suddenly begin to lose the strength that we need in that moment. It's in that moment that I need to find strength in my salvation. That's not the moment to begin questioning whether I'm saved or not. That's the moment I need to begin drawing strength from the fact that I am saved. Hebrews chapter 10 says, Partly, while she were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while she became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion on me of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance." Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. Now, this is kind of one of those verses that's depressing and uplifting, you know. The author tells him, he says, there's going to be moments when you're going to be made a gazing stock. Not a grazing stock, but a gazing stock. It literally means you're going to be put on the stage as as an exhibit. (laughs) You're going to be put in in front of everyone and everyone's going to see you. You're going to be a gazing stock. That's when those things, oh, so you think, you, you've think said all these years God can heal. Well, look at you now. You've said God's a provider. Look at you now. You ain't got a job. You don't have this. You don't have that. Look at you. You're going to be made a gazing stock. He said those moments will come. That's the depressing part. But he says in those moments, he says we take comfort and joy and confidence in the fact that there's something better, that there's something greater waiting for you and I. He tells them to have confidence in heaven, which if I'm going to have confidence in heaven, understand this, because we're, we're real good about skipping this step in the middle. We, we got the Acts 2.38, and, and we get all excited, and, and we can run the aisles on that. And then we come over here. Wait. Oh, wait. I'm supposed to do it the other way. I was watching something the other day about some guy that would give... Well, anyway. He was... He was uh, uh, motivational speaker and he ended up killing three people so hopefully that doesn't happen I'm not taking lessons from that <laughs> but he said that when you he said this is what you do is when you when you when you're trying to get people you say you're here and you go there you go from from left to right like people read so I need to go from Acts 2:38 to over here I don't know that confuses me hopefully nobody no it was a sweat lodge so hopefully no this is not a sweat lodge in here right So you've got Acts 2.38, I'll ignore him and go backwards, we'll do the Hebrew, there we are, we're going biblical, we're reading it backwards like the Hebrew. You've got Acts 2.38, and we get all excited about that, and then we have the hope of heaven here, and we get all excited about heaven, but somewhere in the middle, there's a disconnect in us. Because we're excited about the idea of heaven that there'll be no more sorrow, there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more sickness, there'll be no more pain. And we rejoice in that. And we rejoice in the fact that he has made a way for us to be saved. We rejoice in these two separate ideas, but it's my life right now that connects those. He's saying when you're in the worst possible spot, when you're the gazing stock, you rejoice in the hope of heaven. And the reason you can rejoice in it is because you know that you are saved. But it's in those moments that our, our salvation is a question. That we begin questioning ourselves. It's the, it's the weakness that happens. It's the strength that's sapped. So I can't rejoice really in heaven. You see, I wonder how many times we're just rejoicing in the idea of heaven. That it's, the idea of heaven is a wonderful place it is. But really, are we rejoicing that I will be in heaven and that I have a hope that I will be there? Which means it's based in reality. Which means that I am saved. It's possible. Does that make sense? If it doesn't, that's fine. But we rejoice in the idea of something rather than seeing myself in heaven because I'm not even sure in this moment if I'm saved. I'm just too busy repenting because the enemy keeps coming in. I can't allow heaven to bring me the comfort and strength that I need because I'm not convinced that I'm even sure that I'll be there. Well, you know what? You need to check two things. You need to make sure there's not sin in your life. And if there is, you need to ask for forgiveness. And then once you've asked for forgiveness, which means I'm going to turn when I repent. That means I'm going to do something different. I need to put my faith and trust in the fact that he was faithful to forgive. I'm challenging us today to not cast away the confidence of our salvation. I remember the moment when I received the Holy Ghost. I remember that, 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 uh, that moment, that feeling that I had at the altar when I received Him in my life, that there was a confidence in Him. There was a confidence in His blood. There was confidence in the work of redemption accomplished in my life. There was something there that that I felt completely different. I'm challenging us to not lose that confidence in our life. In John's first epistle, we find that maintaining confidence in our salvation and walking with assurance are an important topic. While John's writings are perhaps most known for his writings concerning love, which we will talk about, we find the idea of confidence in our salvation. It's, it's woven throughout his books, especially in 1 John. And we're not going to go through 1 John in its entirety, but we are going to look at certain passages that deal with this issue of confidence in my salvation. How can I be assured in my salvation? And 1 John deals with it. But I think before we look at those, it is useful to understand some of the background of the book that we're going to be spending most of our time in over the next few weeks. And this is not going to be expository verse by verse of First John, but we are going to take passages and look at them. We find that, of course, First John is labeled First John, and that's because John wrote it, despite the fact that John never calls himself by name in the book. First John, or, or, yeah, the book of First John is, is one of the most quoted um, books by the early church fathers just after the apostles died, uh, that group of, of people that were there. He was one of the most quoted apostles, and we find his writings throughout. From the way that the book is written, we get the idea, and we know that John died of old age despite being exiled. He died of old age. We get this idea that it's written by an older man to a younger generation. He's looking back, as it were, upon things. That's how we, That's the idea we get of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's a, it's a guy that's lived for the Lord for a long time, and he's looking back, giving some lessons. We don't know exactly when or where it was written, 1 John, but the best estimates place it uh, possibly being written from Ephesus. James and Peter write about physical suffering that's taking place within the church. They're writing during a time of great persecution, telling people to endure, to be faithful, in the middle of trials, to have patience. But John deals more with the spiritual condition of the church. Again, this lends itself to a, a Uh, It being written some years after the persecution because he doesn't really deal with it. So the rough times of the church are perhaps 20 to 30 years distant. And you know what happens when trials pass? It happens in your life and my life. We get a little bit more comfortable, right? (laughs) Prayer meeting's real important when we're in the middle of a trial, right? (laughs) But then things kind of get better and things work out and suddenly things become more important than... What were important. So John's writing to people who, in the middle of persecution, you know what? They had no problem, problem praying because, you know what? They didn't know if they were going to die that day. They were getting killed. So they're, they're, they're praying. They're, they're fasting. They're, they're selling everything. They're, they're doing it all. But now, persecution's passed a little bit. Now they're making Christianity the religion of, of, of the whole Roman Empire. That's starting to happen. And suddenly, they're, they're amongst the status quo. It's, it, they don't wake up every morning and wonder if they're going to be uh, thrown in prison or, or killed. And John looks back and he begins to, to warn them about some things that he doesn't want them to slip into, some habits that are beginning to worry him. There's been many false teachers arising. and Again, we find the Antichrist mentioned, the spirit of the Antichrist mentioned in 1 John. And John is concerned with regrounding and retrenching some basic truths, some of which we'll look at. And we've got this theme of having confidence in our salvation. But this idea can also be restated as evidence of true religion is what he talks about. That there are some things in my life that if these things are exhibited in my life, then I can have confidence in my salvation. Again, this is not based on a feeling. It's not just because I feel saved that I am saved. But John tells us that there are some evidences. If you begin to see these things in your life, then you can have confidence. You can have boldness. In your walk with God. Without the evidences of these fruit, on the other side of it, you and I should be concerned about where we stand with God if we aren't seeing these things in our life. These similar ideas they're interwoven throughout the book, and it's it's really almost impossible to separate them the confidence and evidence of fruit. If I don't have the evidence of these things, then I can't have confidence. It's just false hope. It's just wishing. As to the character and personality of John, we're going to look at that a little bit later when we uh, talk about one of the uh, evidences or fruits of our salvation. Except to reiterate that this is written from an older, more experienced person. An older, uh, more uh, uh, well-versed Christian's perspective that's walked with God, that walked with Jesus and have served Him for many years. So John is writing with the benefit of a lifetime of experiences. He's writing from a, a lifetime of hurts, Failures. In fact, he's seen all of his closest friends die. He's writing from a perspective of success, from lessons learned. So you and I would be wise to pay attention to what John has to say in reflection. And we're going to be looking at four main areas over the next four weeks, not today. Uh, one of the signs that we can have confidence in our salvation, the first one is walking in the light. We're going to look what it means to walk in the light, and Again, these are, these are, are wove throughout uh, the writings of John. If I walk in the light, then I have fellowship with him. Conversely, I have on the other side walking in darkness and what that means. He tells us that I should abide in truth, keep his word, keep his commandments. Am I abiding in truth? And what does that mean? Third thing is, is not loving the world. Whoops, that's not right. I got you all mixed up, didn't I? I switched my slides, but not my notes. Oh, well. Not loving the world. And what exactly that means by not loving the world. And then the last one, uh, and and this is not the right order. We'll look at these in different order because whatever. Loving a brother. What does it mean when it says to love a brother? And again, John is is known as the disciple uh, that was closest to Jesus in this way, and the disciple of love. And we're going to be looking at what it means to love a brother. But it's important for us to realize that Although these areas are not, that these are not relegated to certain passages, but they're present throughout his writings and that these four areas themselves are connected as you'll hopefully see. And these are not four steps, these are not four boxes that we can just pack all this stuff into, close it up, tape it up and be done with it. I want you to understand that your life is not a bunch of boxes, I want you to understand that. Because I, I, think, I think even though it's one of those things we know, we still uh, just get it a little messed up. Although I know that not having confidence in my salvation can affect all kind of areas of my life, I really don't connect those things. I, I, we, 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 know that I, we know that we should pray, right? We know that it builds strength in us. We know it builds communication and, 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 and everything with God, fellowship with God. And despite the fact that we know that, we quit praying and then we're having a bad time at work, and we seem to struggle making the connections, because we like to box stuff up. But I want to challenge you as we look at these steps there, it's not four different things, but they're all tied and, and woven in together. In fact, they're more interconnected like a chain. With a chain, while only one link may be broken and the rest are fine, we would call the chain broken, and every link is weakened. You see, that's the challenge. I think, well, I'm just struggling in this one area of my life. No, you're not. You're struggling in your life. That's a tough thing. Because you know what? When one chain is broken, we call the whole chain broken. So it is with these. And I'm closing this morning. I want, us to, I want to just read the first few verses of the book of 1 John as we close out today to wrap up this, this intro thing. Whatever thingy, bobber, jig. First John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. Now we know that that word of life was Jesus Christ, right? He explains that this word of life was the manifested person of Jesus. And he uses that word manifested, which takes us even... uh, to a little deeper understanding into the incarnation of Christ, even more than uh, His gospel does. We read in John chapter 1, verse 14, we know that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, which is really just a statement of fact that this happened. John doesn't explain uh, uh, a whole lot more about it. It's just this is what happened. But in this verse, we see this Word manifested. And we need to understand that there was more to the incarnation than just... Uh, uh, God wrapping Himself in flesh more than just the Word becoming flesh but there was actually when that happened a mystery was unfolded to you and I. That we received revelation. The incarnation was not just an event that happened. It was not just a birth. It was not just a moment in time. But a revelation of hidden truth of who God really was was revealed to mankind at that moment. And you need to understand that when the incarnation happened in your life, when you experienced a new birth experience, it was not just an event at an altar. It was not just an event at a baptismal tank or wherever it was somewhere. But a revelation, a mystery, was opened of truth of who God really is and should be in your life. When we say that the Word became flesh, we think of the Bible, that that this book became flesh and and, and was personified in the person of Jesus Christ. But uh, remember when these statements were made, that when the author wrote it, that when John wrote it, he was not referring to the Bible, he was referring to the Old Testament as we know it. So when John states this, he means that all the rules, all the ceremonies, all the sacrifices, all of it, that took on human form, and it showed up in the person of Jesus Christ. You ever wonder why Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law? Because if he would have destroyed the law, he would have destroyed himself, because he was the law. But he didn't come to destroy it, he came to fulfill the law. And and, and this incarnation was a revealing of the mystery of the law. The mystery was that the people couldn't figure out is that how do I get to God through ceremonies? How do I get to God through sacrifices, through rules? And Jesus Christ was the fulfillment saying, you know what? I'm bringing something greater. I'm bringing mercy. I'm bringing grace. I'm bringing the fulfillment of the law so that now I have redemption revealed to me in my life. If you didn't know it, the incarnation was a big deal, especially when John states it this way, that it's not just a moment and that's... And we have to understand and grasp that fact that it's not just something that we talk about, but it was the greatest revelation that you and I could ever receive in our life. Not only did the Incarnation reveal the word of life, life but it also the Word of life. That's disgusting the word of life, but it also revealed eternal life through Jesus Christ, that up until this point when, when the Incarnation happened, I did not, uh, man did not have a revelation of eternal life with God. Now there's debate about whether the Jews believed in an afterlife and what kind of afterlife it was. But it was not, I'm going to prepare a place for you that we know of. It was not streets of gold. It was not spending eternity where he is the light. There is no need of any other light. When, he, when his incarnation brought about a revelation of eternal life without that incarnation, you and I would not even have the hope of heaven. It was about revealing eternity to you and I. So when you look at the Word, when you look at Jesus Christ, when you look at Scripture, you should see abundant life for today. He came to give us life more abundant, and you should find uh, uh, abundant life for eternity, for tomorrow. That should be what's revealed to you in its pages. That you know what, there's something for me today, and there's something even greater for me tomorrow. So I have confidence for today, and I have confidence for tomorrow because of the work that He did. First John chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. He says he stated the previous, so that those of you, and John's one of the last ones left at this point, so that those of you who did not physically see, physically hear, physically touch Jesus, can get some idea of what took place through the life of Jesus. He wanted to, them to catch a glimpse of what it was actually like walking with Jesus. He wanted them to be able to share the feelings and experiences that come through knowing who and what Jesus really was. And he introduces this word fellowship. It's translated here, fellowship, the Greek is. And this is found throughout John's writings, especially in 1 John. Jesus throughout the New Testament. is translated various ways as communion, communication, contribution, distribution. But it implies that there is a relationship that involves giving, mutual respect, and a deep bond. You see, that's what the disciples had. When we read about the disciples and how they walked with Jesus, and they, they lived out in the open, they traveled around for three years. It was a relationship that involved giving, respect. It was a deep bond. You don't toil all night and then step out on the waves when there's a storm going without there being some sort of deep bond. Or else you're just nuts. This is the same word used when Paul speaks to the Corinthians about their communion practices. It's, it's a, There's a fellowshipping that happens with God and with each other. And let me just say that if I don't have confidence in my salvation, I'm going to have problems achieving this fellowship with God. If I want to know God... I've got to know him beyond questioning my salvation. There's a fellowship that John says that, you know what? I walked with him. I talked with him. But he has made a way through salvation that you and I can have just as close a relationship with him as if he was really here. Now, that's kind of hard for us to understand because we're talking about the visible and the invisible. But John says, I'm telling you all this so that you can participate in the same relationship that we had. And you know what? If I don't have confidence in my salvation, there's no way I can have that relationship with Him. And this is where John really emphasizes that fellowship is not just something that we enjoy. Or it's not just a benefit of serving God. But it's a distinguishing mark of Christians. If I don't have fellowship with him, if I don't have fellowship with my brothers, John questions whether we're actually a Christian because it's a distinguishing mark of Christians. John is writing so that people can have full assurance of salvation, and this is one of the ways of knowing. And then verse 4 ends. It tells us that he's, he's going to write what he does. The reason he's writing is for one simple reason. That our joy may be full. That our joy may be full. Now, I don't know about you, where you're at in your life, how you feel about the world now, but I tell you what, I could use some joy in my life. If we ever needed our joy to be full, it's now. And John, John tells us, you know what, I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing about having assurance of your salvation. I'm writing about having confidence of salvation for one reason. Not so that you can walk around haughty and proud. Not so that you can look down on people. Not so that you can have all this stuff. But there's one reason that your joy may be full. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm serious when I tell you I wonder if a lot of our weaknesses and struggles is simply coming back to I don't have confidence in my own salvation. My joy is not full. Full means to render complete or perfect. John wants our joy to be as complete as possible. And I can't have that fullness of joy while I'm wondering if I'm even saved. We can't live joyful lives while wondering if my salvation is complete. This is a joy that is started. If we can use that uh, terminology. When I go through a new birth experience, there's a joy that started. But there's more joy than that. Let me just say, you should be more joyful at, at, at this point in your walk with God than when you were first filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, there's a joy that comes when I experience salvation that is probably unlike anything else because I once was lost, but now I'm found. Okay, There's that joy, but I should have more joy now than I did then because there's a joy that comes with knowing God. There's a joy that comes when I'm confident in my salvation. There's a joy that comes when I know my place in Him and in His kingdom. And there's a, there should be a fullness of joy. As John says, a completeness, the longer I walk with Him, I should find more joy in Him every day. John wants to give us a confidence in our salvation, the assurance, so that I can walk in what God has called me to walk in. And, and, and so that the reason that he died is for us to walk in confidence of salvation. As we stand this morning, I wonder this morning in closing, I, and I pray these lessons challenge you. Again, this is not, the, the point of these is not so that I have pride in my salvation, but so that I walk in confidence in what he has done for me. I think uh, there's that verse that says we frustrate the grace of God. I wonder how many times there's things that, that He died for. I, I've wondered sometimes, how many of you ever repented for the same thing more than once? <clears throat> you know, if, if, if I was God, well, there'd be a whole lot of things different. Let's start on that. That would, that would annoy the fire out of me that would just bug me to death. Because you know what? I came to earth, wrapped myself in flesh, went to a cross, and died for that. And you can't get over it? you saying that I didn't do enough? Yeah, his blood's enough. His blood's enough. You know what? I don't have confidence in his sacrifice and what he did. I don't have confidence in my salvation. You know what? His, his death was enough for you and I. And it's not I'm walking, well, I'm all this and all that. No, His death was all this and all that. So I walk in confidence of His blood and of His death. I wonder this morning as we close, if, if we, I, I'm not gonna, we're not going to pray for a challenge. I wonder just this morning if you could just thank the Lord for your salvation in your life. Just thank Him. You know what? He's, he's brought, I don't know how far He's brought you, but He's brought me a long way. And I'm thankful that I stand here. I'm not perfect, but I'm saved this morning.